Hey, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, uh, since I don't have to dismiss any of our kids. Um, as we're singing those songs, this, this is the passage that came to mind, and, and really this is the scripture I want to pray for us this morning. It's from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim this morning is not ourselves, but Christ. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we turn to the reading and the preaching of your word, I I pray that um, you would be the one that is proclaimed Christ, you would be the one that is magnified, talked about, uplifted, glorified, enhanced, enlarged, that people would leave here today with a greater understanding, but more than that, a greater uh, desire to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I pray that we wouldn't tamper with your word. Thank you for the way that your light has shone in so many hearts seated in this room, but I know, Lord, just by probability that, that your light is still seeking to penetrate the hearts of many this morning, and I pray that it would. I, I pray that people would know you. God, I pray for our community. I pray for so many uh, people who are gathered in churches that are not our own this morning. I pray that your light of the gospel of glory of Christ would penetrate their hearts too. We, we just want you to be known. We want your kingdom to come, not our own. We want you to be proclaimed, not us. So may you be magnified this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat for me. And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series of Philippians uh, with Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And I'm going to make sure to give you plenty of time uh, to get there. Um, Every October, you may not be aware of this, but every October, we are required to empty this room. We can't have church here um, to make room for what? The Seafood Festival, the Great Ogeechee Seafood Festival. The city of Richmond Hill hosts a a huge seafood festival. Um, J.F. Gregory Park right out here will be overtaken by by food vendors and different entertainment productions. And my kids' favorite part, the carnival rides. So in 2022, we as a family went to our first um, Great Ogeechee Seafood Festival. And y'all, I have got to recount to you an experience I had with, with the spiritual forces of evil that night in the form of a carnival ride named The Zipper. Anybody know what The Zipper is? Lord, the, Satan and his emissaries went all out in the creation of this bad boy, okay? I knew, looking at it, and I knew my kids wanting to go on it, this is going to be something. I, I better gird up for it, but my kids were adamant, like the boys were adamant. They wanted to ride this ride, and although Hudson, who's here, was clearly too small to board this ride, the carny worker could care less, right? So, so he lets us get strapped into one of these cages of despair. Now, you, if you haven't ridden the zipper or if you've never been on it or seen this thing, let me kind of explain how it works, okay? It's just a faster-moving Ferris wheel. And as it rotates like a Ferris wheel, each individual cage flips you repeatedly over and over and over again. So I'm sitting in the middle of the boys screaming like a little girl. I mean, it was horrible. But I'm having to hold on to Hudson's like limp, lifeless body as he's like coming out of the seat and flipping around. Y'all, it, it was truly terrible, okay? But by the grace of God, we endured. 
And we got off that thing, but, but I kid you not, y'all, I was nauseous for more than 24 hours after that. Like laying in bed that night, I felt like I was flipping. Like it was a horrible, horrible experience for me. But we went back the next year, 2023, got carnival tickets, but I am no fool. And I knew that Johnny Krause, one of our youth workers, many of you may know Johnny, his wife was out of town for a wedding. And I called him, I was like, man, I love you. I don't want you to be alone. I want to care for you. You should come to the seafood festival with us. And I made him ride every ride, including the zipper with my kids. It was incredible. He still hasn't forgiven me. He'll be here second service. I can't wait to talk about it. So what in the world, you know, why do I bring up the zipper carnival ride as we go into Philippians chapter 2, all right? Well, it's because in today's text, y'all, we are going to ride the theological equivalent of the zipper. Um, we are going to, to address a subject that if you study it and if you apply yourself to this subject, this, this subject, y'all, will flip you around and around and around, over and over and over again, and it, it'll feel like you can never even get off this ride. So, so what is it? What is the theological equivalent of the zipper? It is the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I'm going to go deep into each of these, but what do I mean? Let me kind of define our terms, okay? Let me begin with God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty refers to his supreme rule and power over and in all things. That is the sovereignty of God. It's the biblical truth that nothing in the universe can ever come to pass unless God has, has eternally permitted it, okay? The sovereignty of God is the biblical truth that he alone, oh, he alone is almighty, and he does what he pleases, as he pleases, and when he pleases. And let me just give this to you for free. It, if you can come to know, like really know our sovereign God, then like Charles Spurgeon, you can say that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you rest your head at night. If you can come to find yourself, like knowing and trusting in the sovereignty of God, y'all, you'll find peace. He's in control. He is absolutely sovereign. And I just want to be clear. The Bible is clear. God is sovereign. But some of you sit there and you're looking at me and you're, and you're reasoning and you're going, well, what about free will? Doesn't that mean that, that my responsibility, my actions matter? Congratulations. You just took your first flip on the zipper, okay? Because the Bible is also clear that mankind has responsibility. That we are commanded and expected to make decisions that align themselves with God's expected commands. In fact, the Bible teaches you're going to be held accountable for every decision and act that we make. Y'all, the Bible is clear. Mankind possesses responsibility. And you're, you're blinking and you're like, well, if that's true, then God must not be sovereign. Congratulations. You just did another flip. Y'all, and we can do this all day long, and the quicker that some of you can come to just, just, just accept that, that there may be some things your fallen human rational mind can't fully grip, the, the quicker you can get off this proverbial zipper. So here's what I'm going to do today. I am not going to harmonize these two theological truths. I, I can't. <laughs> If you think that I can in 30 minutes, like I appreciate your confidence, okay? I can't do, I can't harmonize these two seemingly contradictory things. Do you want to know why? Because they are both equally true. 
The Bible is clear on both. I, I, can't, I can't harmonize them. I can't reconcile them. Charles Spurgeon, much wiser, smarter, more experienced than me, was once asked, how can you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? You know what he said? I would never try because you can't reconcile friends. You reconcile enemies, right? You, you don't reconcile friends. J.I. Packer once wrote that, that these two things, they're not uneasy neighbors. The neighbors they're not living at, at constant cold war. They're not opposed to each other. They're friends. They're working together. Y'all, think about these two things as, as the parallel train tracks upon which faith is ridden. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they're both equally true. So I'm, so I'm not going to be able to harmonize them. Here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to preach them both. Because the scripture teaches them both. But in our text today, we're going to see that as these two things work together, it's actually where the power of the church is found. When God's responsibility and, I mean, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility works together, it's where the church finds her potency. It's where the church finds her power. So if you're an outline person, there it is. We're going to look at God's sovereignty. We're going to see man's responsibility, and that leads to the church's potency. And if you are a screaming five-point Calvinist, email ccollins at cbcrichmondhill.com. He'd love to have a conversation with you. And if you are like a, a, I am an Arminian and I'm all about free will, you can also email ccollins at cbcrichmondhill.com, okay? But here we go. We're going to try to tackle this, this incredible, incredible tension in 33 minutes. Philippians chapter 2. Let's read the first Two verses of our text, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Anybody feeling nauseous? Just get flipped around a little bit, didn't you? Do you see it? Do you, do you see this tension? Paul saying, listen, I want you, church in Philippi, to work out your salvation. But I also want you to know it was God who worked it all in you. Did you feel both of those? We see man's responsibility and we see God's sovereignty. But here's, here, here's where we need to start. We cannot work out our salvation if God has not first worked it in. Okay? We have to start with God's sovereignty because if he doesn't work it in, we don't have any opportunity to work it out. So we're actually going to tackle these two verses from the bottom up. Let's begin with God's sovereignty. Now, I've talked a little bit about what it means, but let me continue to define it. God is sovereign. He alone possesses supreme power and rule over all things. Church, think about this for a second. He is never constrained. God is never backed into a corner. He's never hindered regarding his will or his wishes. He is the, the sovereign, which is king, the monarch. He is ruling over all of creation. There are no limits to his rule. Mankind is not the master of their own fate, although we think that we are. Nor do the forces of evil get to drive and dictate this life. It is him and him alone. He directs and fulfills all of his purposes. Nobody can defeat his counsel, resist his will. Church, God is never helpless. He is never frustrated. He is never at a loss as to what to do. Can you rest in that? Like, get a picture of the real God. That he is not in heaven going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with the elections in America this year? Like, he's not anxious. Everything is going to play out exactly how he wants it to play out. He is utterly and totally in control at all times. 
Arthur Pink, in his brilliant book called The Sovereignty of God, perfectly summarizes this important character of God. He says, there's no revolving world, no shining of star, no storm, no creature moving, no actions of men, no errands of angels, no deeds of the devil. Nothing can come to pass unless God has purposed it. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he's almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and on earth, so that none can thwart his purposes. His sovereignty is absolute, y'all. It is irresistible. It is infinite. It's not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world. And he rules it according to his own good pleasure for his own eternal glory, end quote. Now listen, I, I know that this topic brings up all kinds of questions for you. Like, like it should. You go, well, if God is absolutely sovereign, what about suffering? Right, if God is absolutely sovereign, like what about the rampant evil that we do hear about, that we do witness, that we do experience? I've only got 30 minutes. I can't answer that today. I, but here's how I would answer it. God is still sovereign. He is sovereign over your suffering, and he is sovereign over the forces of evil. Let me give you one quick example. When Pontius Pilate an evil ruler of Rome, looked at Jesus and says, I am condemning you to crucifixion. What did Jesus tell him? Buddy, you would have no authority here if it was not granted to you by my Father in heaven. That evil man who thought he was ruling that day had nothing. He was operating under the supreme sovereignty of our God. And it led to incomparable sufferings to Jesus. Right, that moment, that sovereign moment of God led to some deep sufferings, but even in that suffering, God was sovereign. So I know it brings up a lot of questions, but I, I just want you to hear God is sovereign. And I know we can wrestle, we can flip, we can flip, we can flip, but God is sovereign. He's sovereign in every area of life. But as it regards our text today, Paul's wanting the Philippian church to know that he, he's sovereign in salvation, that he and he alone works salvation in the hearts of man. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. Did you hear that? Whose will was it? God's to crush Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That is a statement of supreme sovereignty. When Paul was preaching to the masses in Acts chapter 2, I mean, Peter, talking about Peter, Peter said, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Our salvation, y'all, was purposed and accomplished by God's sovereignty. It was not your choice. It is not your own merit. It is his work in us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And regarding that work of salvation, in our text today, Paul says, that is God's work in you. Look back at verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so the sovereign work of God in salvation, in us, accomplishes two things. Did you catch what it accomplishes? It, it does what? It works to our will, and it works in our works. God's sovereign work of salvation changes our will and it changes our works. Another way of putting it is it changes our attitudes and it changes our actions. We, we discussed this in detail a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. But just a quick reminder, sin, if you still live in your sin, you've never been accepted the forgiveness and the grace that is yours in Christ. If you are still in your sin, that sin has marred your will. You may know what is right, but you don't do it, do you? 
And you know what is wrong, but you continue to do it. It's because sin has marred your will. And then if you go, you know what, I do know what is right, and I, I do actually want to do it, you can't because sin has marred your works. Sin has marred these things. But listen, when God in His sovereignty works salvation in you, He, he changes your will and He changes your works. That's the work of salvation. Christ renews and cre- recreates our wills, y'all. And not only that, but he imparts to us the very spirit of God who empowers us to actually do it. He renews and recreates our works. In Christ, he gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. And let me be extraordinarily clear. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you have earned it. Look at verse 13. It's God who works in you, both to will and to work. Why? Finish that that verse. Wake up, get some coffee. For his good pleasure. He saved you for his good pleasure. Him pouring out his love on you makes him happy. Him choosing you and renewing you and recreating you and transforming you. Oh, it's for his good pleasure. It makes him happy. You didn't earn it. You you don't deserve it. It's just the free gift of grace from a sovereign God. God is sovereign. And he sovereignly works his salvation in us. And Paul's making the argument here, he's going, listen, if God has done that, if God has sovereignly worked in you, then you should work it out. Let's go back to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because he has worked it in, you now work it out. And and Paul says it would probably be a good job for you to work that out with some fear and trembling. Now, we, we talked about the fear of God last summer when we talked about God's holiness. This is a little bit different here. This is not the fear of a sinner standing before a holy, vengeful God. J.A. Mott, your Bible commentator and scholar, writes this. He says, this is a fear of a true child before the most loving of fathers. It's not a fear of what he might do to us, but a fear of the realization of the hurt that we might cause him. This is a fear and trembling. It's a, it's, a, it's a fear in the awe of God's great grace as seen in his work in salvation. Let me say it this way. Because we are so overwhelmed and grateful for his work in us, we, we, we want to tremble with that responsibility. We want to steward it so well. We don't want to live in contradiction to the work that he has done in us. So we want to respond by working it out. So if you're an outline person, let's move to point number two. What is man's responsibility here? I want to beat this dead horse one more time, okay? God's initiative calls for man's response. God's work was first. Without God's initiative, we would not even have the ability to respond, which is by definition responsibility, right? Responsibility is the ability to respond. Because of his work within us, we now have the ability to respond. So what does our response look like? What is our work? Well, just, just to be blunt, it's, it's obedience. Our work in working out this salvation is, is to obey. It is obedience. Look at our text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, God's work is the inner work of transforming us. It's, it's renewing us. Ours is the outer work of obeying Christ. Now, Paul is not saying obey me. Paul's not saying, Philippians, do what I tell you to do. He's going, no, I want you to obey God. He wants them to obey God like Jesus Christ obeyed God. 
right? One of the, the challenges of expository preaching is it's easy for us to look at verses 12 through, through 16 or 12 through 18 and forget about what Paul just said in verses 1 through 11, right? Look, look with me at verse 6 in that text right above us. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul had just reminded the Philippians of Jesus' example of obedience. And he's going, do that. I want you to do what Jesus did. I want you to obey God the way that Jesus has. And y'all, because of Jesus' obedience, because of his willingness to lay his will down and accept the will of the Father, we now have the ability to respond just like that. Whereas before, you, you couldn't obey what God was asking you to do. You were, you were rebellious to the commands of God. Now, because of the work of Christ, you have the ability to respond in like manner. You have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2.5. You, you can obey, and that's our work, y'all. It's to obey. But can I give you a, a massive secret about obedience? Obeying God is so much easier when you have true faith in the sovereignty of God. The firmer your faith in God's sovereignty, the easier obedience to God in all things becomes. Let me just give you some examples, okay? If God tells you, come and follow me, which he has, you'll debate that command all day long if you don't trust that he actually knows where he's going. If God tells you, forgive those who hurt you, which he has, You'll kick and scream against that command if you don't trust that vengeance ultimately belongs to the Lord. If God tells you, don't you worry about your life, your clothing, your food, or your money, you will live your life anxious and disobey that command if you don't trust that he cares enough and is actually powerful enough to provide all of your needs. If God tells you, I, I want you to witness to your coworker, which he has. You'll ignore that passion, you'll ignore that command with passion if you don't trust that fruitfulness is up to him and that the future of your career is actually in his hands and not your own. Y'all want me to keep going? We could do this with every single command of Christ. Our lack of obedience, y'all, is almost always linked to our lack of trust in his sovereign character. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to show us in this text. And you're like, I don't, I don't see that anywhere. Well, that's just the, the joy of study. Let's go to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. that You may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, listen, I just need to apologize. I'm not going to hit on the back end of this. Just, just don't have time, okay? If you want to know what this drink offering means, you can email me. I'll be able to tell you. But where I want to slow down is in verses 14 through 16. Because here in verse 14 and 15, Paul, in, the author of this text, in, in typical Pauline fashion, is actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
And I'm going to put it up on the screen so that we can see it, because understanding what's going on in Deuteronomy 32 is the key to unlocking Paul's point here. Let me give you a little context, okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses, God's leader of the exodus of the people of Israel, is about to die. And he gives his farewell speech to the people of Israel, and this is how he begins his farewell speech. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. He's just using a lot of words to say, everybody listen, okay? He goes on and says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Gosh, it's so powerful. He just says, everybody just shut up and listen for just a second. And I'm sorry, kids, I know we don't use that word in my house, okay? He says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness. He's without sin, just and upright is he. He tells everybody, listen, I just want to talk for a second. And he begins this farewell speech by magnifying the sovereignty of God. He says, God is great. His work is perfect. His ways are justice. He's faithful. He's without sin. But then we take a hard turn here in verse 5. He says, but, but they... I've dealt corruptly with them. They're no longer his children because they're blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Does that sound familiar? Right? This is exactly what Paul's quoting here in Philippians chapter 2. And, and this is what's going on in Deuteronomy 32. In spite, in spite of God's consistent and sovereign work in and among the people of Israel, how did they respond to God's sovereign work? pattern for the people of Israel was to, to constantly reject him. To instead of becoming the people of God, they became a crooked and twisted generation. Now listen, this rejection of God by the people of Israel took place over time. Like it didn't just happen overnight. It took place over time. But let me tell you, it started in their lives and in their hearts and in their community very early on. In fact, I'm going to show you where it started. It, it began in the Exodus. Now, I, I trust that, that you guys are familiar with the story of the Exodus, because I don't have a lot of time for us to go there, but, but the Exodus was the liberation and, and the freedom of God's people from slavery to Egypt, right? The people of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Exodus was God's sovereign work of liberating the people of Israel. And how did he do it? I mean, the scripture teaches that he did it with a mighty hand and outstretched arms, great deeds of terror, signs and wonders, sovereign signs and wonders, right? The plagues, the Passover, we know the story, right? God sovereignly led the people of Israel out of Egypt. But that work of sovereignly freeing them culminated in one final miracle. In Exodus chapter 14, remember that reference, okay, I'm going to come back. Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus chapter 14, what happened? Egyptians were hotly pursuing the people of Israel. Their backs up are against the Red Sea, and what does God do? Parts it. Parts the Red Sea. God's people go through without even getting wet, whereas the people of Egypt get, get taken over. God sovereignly saved his people at the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. What chapter was it? 14, okay. Exodus chapter 15. So they're standing on the banks, free liberated. Exodus chapter 15, Moses begins to sing this beautiful song about God's sovereign love for his people and God's power in the salvation of his people. Exodus chapter 15, that's the song. Well, at the end of Exodus chapter 15, when Moses finally gets done singing, the people of Israel are like, we are thirsty. And listen, I'm not here to cast stones. Like, they had just ran from Egypt 
out in the wilderness. I get it. They're thirsty. But how did they, how did they respond to that thirst? Exodus chapter 15, verse 24 says, they grumbled against God. So what does God do in the face of their grumbling? He loves them. He, and, and he actually sovereignly provides for their thirst. He, he strikes a rock and water comes out and he provides all their needs out of his sovereign hand. But in Exodus chapter 16, thirst is quenched, but now they're hungry. And what do they do with that hunger? Exodus chapter 16, verse 8 says they grumbled against God. How did God respond to their grumbling? Well, he, he, he sovereignly, out of his love for them, provided them something to eat. Miraculously, y'all. Sovereignly. No door dash. No food trucks. Like, like, woke up one morning, food's available. God sovereignly provided the needs of the people of Israel. Well, we, we know the story. The pattern continues to the point where they get to the, the border of the promised land. They finally get to the border of the promised land, and Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. Ten return, and they're like, henny penny. You read those kids' books? You know, sky's falling. We cannot go into the promised land. There's giants in there. We're never going to be able to conquer them. We should have stayed in Egypt. Numbers chapter 14 says they grumbled against God. Said we wish he never would have saved us in the beginning. All right, church, that's, that's the pattern of the people of Israel. God would sovereignly work in and among them, and they would selfishly grumble. And at the root of their grumbling was a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. Did you catch it? Let me say it again. At the root of their grumbling was a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. They grumbled against God because they didn't trust that God would provide water and food. They grumbled against God because they didn't trust in God's protection and plans for the land of Canaan. They grumbled against God because they did not trust His purposes for His people. At the root of their grumbling was a distrust in the sovereignty of God. And I hate to say it, but it's the same for you and for me. Church, we, we are commanded by God to obey. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. We are commanded to work out our salvation, the salvation that God has so graciously worked within us. But here's where it gets real personal. We struggle to obey God because we don't trust Him. We, we don't trust that what He wants for us is actually what's best for us. We don't trust that he knows what he's talking about, that he wants these things for us. Let me just ask you, do you actually deep down believe that God's commands for your life are what's best for you? Do you believe that, that God's commands for your family is what's best for your children? Do you believe what God commands for your marriage, for your sexuality, for your purity is actually what is best for you? Do you trust that what he's commanded with your finances and your possessions and your career is actually what's best for you? Because if you do, if you go, yes, I trust that, then you will obey him. In all things, in all things, not like some things, not just a handful. Look at verse 14. Paul goes, listen, here's how you work it out. Do all things. Great, Paul, thanks. Just obey everything. And y'all, our, our, our disobedience is most likely linked to our lack of trust. If, if we trust him, we'll obey him. But, but if we don't, we'll probably grumble, won't we? And y'all, that grumbling, if it, if it goes unchecked, it, it will fester like a cancer. It will corrupt more and more of your view of God. And you think it's just staying with you, but it's not. It's actually oozing into your children. It's oozing into your home. It's oozing into your workplace. It's oozing into your community. And if left unchecked, it will ooze into this church. 
And in our text, Paul, Paul's pleading, y'all. Go back to verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved. Like, he is pastorally pleading. He's going, my dear friends, my church, my, my beloved, don't be like the people of Israel. That's what he's saying. Is like, don't be like them. Don't, don't receive and see the sovereign work of God within you and reject it and grumble. Instead, do the opposite. Obey them. And, and listen, if we, if we obey the church in Philippi, the church in Richmond Hill, if we obey what God's commanded us by a trust in his sovereign work, then, then, then we will actually become the people he has saved us to be. Instead of the people of Israel becoming a crooked and twisted generation, go back to our text. Verse 15, we, in our obedience, in our responsibility, initiated by God's sovereignty, we will be blameless, innocent. Children of God, without blemish. And instead of becoming a crooked and twisted generation, we will get to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and, and twisted generation. And that's our final point for us this morning. God's sovereignty. Trust in that. It fuels our obedience, which is our responsibility, which will inevitably lead to the church's potency. Y'all, the consequence of this equation is that we finally, as the church of Jesus Christ, get to shine as lights in the world. Do y'all know that the world, just, just like the, the Israelites of old, the, the world, y'all, by definition, is hard-hearted, uh, uh, unbelieving, constantly rejecting the grace and the goodness of our God. The world, according to Scripture, is alienated from God, indifferent to His presence, hostile towards His supreme rule. The world, according to 1 John, lies under the power of the evil one, rebellious to the supreme power of God. And here, Paul is telling the church in Philippi and the church in Richmond Hill you are in the midst of that world, right? You are in the midst of that world, a, a world that is corrupted, a world that is twisted. No amens? You, do you see this in our world? And you're going, yeah, we see it like crazy. But listen, let me just remind you, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in our world. Every generation has always reflected the sin and, and the unredemption of an evil heart that is opposed to God. Jesus grieved over a twisted and crooked generation in the book of Matthew. Peter grieved over a crooked and twisted generation in the book of Acts. This is every generation. It's just, in our context today, it's on full display, right? We're seeing it. It's just more visible. And, and I have theories, and I'm going to be harsh for a second, but I believe that leadership at the highest level in every institution is morally bankrupt, void of any fear of God. And consequently, the moral failure of leadership just provides permission to the masses to, 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 to li a license to sin, to celebrate sin, to promote sin. So we live in a very visible, celebrated, crooked, and twisted generation today. That word crooked is the Greek word skolios. Does that sound familiar? Skoliosis. Yeah, it's, it's a bent world, y'all. It's deviated. And we are in the midst of it. But guess what? It's exactly where we're supposed to be. It is exactly where we're supposed to be. And you go, how could you say that? Is God not sovereign? Is He not sovereign? Of course He is. Of course God is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He has sovereignly worked salvation in a group of people called the church. And because he is sovereign, he has sovereignly placed that church in the midst of a crooked generation. And in his sovereignly, sovereignty, he wants us to shine like lights in this crooked, dark, and twisted world. 
So guess what, y'all? We're exactly where we're supposed to be. So stop grumbling. Just start obeying. Stop whining and, and start shining. That's cliche, and you can tweet that, okay? Stop whining. Stop shining. It's, it's, it's time for us to start shining. It's time for the church to step into our destiny, worked out in by the sovereignty of God and worked out by the responsibility of mankind. And I'm going to close with this, but, but if grumbling is the virus that keeps us from being the church that God has called us to be, I want to point you to the antidote. Let's go back to verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling, without disputing. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. How? How? How can we, as the church, in the midst of such darkness, how can we shine? Paul answered it. Hold fast to the word of life. What is this word of life? The word of life is Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh. The word of life is gospel, the good news that testifies to Jesus Christ. The word of life are, are the scriptures, the inspired words of God that testify to the gospel, which testifies to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The word of life is Jesus, the gospel, it's the scriptures. Church, when you begin to lose, loosen your grip on the word of God, your light begins to dim. And over time, you will drift into becoming a crooked generation, just like the world we are actually called to save. Do you hear that? When, when we stop believing what this book says, y'all, we will start believing whatever the world says. To the point where today some self-proclaimed Christians look more like the world than they look like Christ. To the point where some self-proclaimed churches look more like the world than they look like Jesus Christ. Listen, you show me a crooked and twisted church, and I bet that I can show you far earlier, somewhere down the line, an abandonment to the Word of God. Same for the life of a Christian. You show me a compromised Christian, and if I sat down with you and had a cup of coffee with you, not to beat you up, but to start listening and asking questions, I bet I can show a Christian who has never fallen in love with the Word of life or has abandoned the Word of life. You loosen your grip on this book, you'll start grumbling, you'll start distrusting, and you will become a crooked and perverse generation. Our potency, y'all, our brightness comes from our adherence to the word of life. You know, you ever look at a campfire? Just like an ember that, that kind of breaks away from the source of heat. Like over time, what happens to that ember? It, it dims down. It, 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 burn, it burns out. But if you keep that ember close to that source of heat, it, it'll burn all day. In similar fashion, y'all, if you can hold fast and stay near to Jesus Christ through the word of life, then you will find your potency as the church of Jesus Christ, and you'll shine as lights in this world. Ooh, I had decaf this morning. I am pretty fired up. Well, listen, that's all the time that we have this morning. And, and, but I do, I do want to go back to verse 12. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, my prayer as I've prepared this week is that my tone would, would be consistent with Scripture. And my tone wouldn't be condemning. My tone wouldn't be hard-hearted. I wouldn't come down on anybody or on our church or on our community or on our world. That it would be pastoral. Like Paul's saying, my beloved, y'all, Paul was pastorally exhorting this, this church. But he loves them enough to exhort them with hard truths. 
John MacArthur once wrote that a good shepherd is not known by how gently he pets the sheep. A good shepherd is known by how well he protects and feeds the church. Church, I, I, I love you. I, we have a destiny to fulfill, though. I, I need to exhort you. We, we've got to stop whining about this culture and start shining because that's exactly where God wants us to be and that's exactly what God wants us to do. And the only way we can do it, y'all, is trusting in God's sovereignty, owning our responsibility, and discovering our potency. So why don't you stand up with me? I'm going to pray for us, and our team will come back and lead us through a song of response. Father, I'm excited about what you're doing in this world. I'm excited that you are a God who is sovereign. And just as you always have, you are a God who loves to make a name for yourself. That as you miraculously saved your your people, Israel, from Egypt, the surrounding nations heard of your fame. They had heard of your glory. I can't wait to see you to see what you're going to do in America in the future, in the present, in the future. You're going to make a name for yourself. And I pray that we as your church, this this local expression of your body would, would take up our responsibility to shine as lights in the world. Individually, that we would become Uh, men and women who are responsible to work out this salvation, that we would begin to obey you. I pray that you would reveal in each of our hearts areas where we may mistrust you. Teach us who you are. Magnify yourself in our lives, in our hearts, so that we can know you and trust you and obey you. And I pray that as we do that individually, we would do that collectively, and we would shine as lights in this dark, dark world. We want the gospel of Jesus to be made known Use us, Lord, but help us to work out what you have worked in. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.